Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2 Electric Bukalu. I'm your host, Anthony. This week, we covered the first Davos chapter in Clash of Kings. This is the first POV chapter from a character we did not meet in the first volume. It's also the first chapter of someone who was born common. So it's a bit of a departure from what we've seen so far from Martin's story. It's also the first time we're introduced to the Azor High mythology. With me to discuss this is Dr. Andrew Howe. Andrew is a historian at La Sierra University. After that, I include a short Q&A session with Aaron. If you have a question for me or Aaron, you can send those to book at baldmove.com. All right, without further ado, here is Dr. Andrew Howe. If you want to talk about, you know, HBO, I, I've i only been back from India for about a week. Oh, really? Okay. What were you doing in yeah. India? Oh, uh, bird watching. Are you kidding? I'm a, I'm a big bird watcher. Oh, that's so, so uh, amazing. That's fantastic. Yeah. Oh, it was, it was, it was a great trip. Uh, and you know, birds, birds are, are my passion, but it, it's, uh, uh, it was even better to see uh, tiger and leopard exceedingly well. Wow. So that, my goodness. Yeah. Well, I, I, I did just a little research on the Gur Falcon. Oh yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. cause that's, I, I saw that in this chapter and I was like, that's, that's fake. That's that's a real thing i looked it up it, it, it it's a sexually dimorphic falcon and uh, it's the largest of the falcon species i i had no idea before the research on this chapter yeah they're they are all power uh in a way that the peregrine is uh sort of you know speed and your falcons uh can't fly as fast as the other falcons but they can fly it, it, what they do is they get below their prey because they can fly you know, it's almost like a, a, a car in a very low gear. They can go uphill as quickly as they can go, you know, wow. as quickly as they can go downhill. So they get below a bird and, a, and most birds when they, when they climb lose speed. Mm. Uh, and, and, and the jeer falcon, you know, just keeps up at speed and grabs uh, mostly ducks out of the air. So I, w- I guess I pronounced that incorrectly. So it's, it's called a jeer falcon. Yeah. Yeah. Jeer falcon or jeer falcon. Jeer yeah. falcon. Okay. Interesting. The peregrine, which I happen to know, is the fastest animal on the planet. Yes. Um, that's your Zoom handle. It sure is. Is that yeah. your well, is that your favorite bird? Uh, it's one of them. I, I think I think it's because uh, I didn't I didn't knowingly do that. My computer hard drive is named uh, Peregrine. Uh, okay, so, got it. Yeah, got it. Well, I, you're the perfect person to talk about the the Jur Falcon, which I was just researching. Not less than 10 minutes ago. So, yeah, all right. So, India, and I'm assuming that the uh, the birding is is good in India. Uh, oh, very why good, else, yeah. why, why else would you go, right? Yeah. Uh, well, there's plenty of, of cultural – I mean, there's a lot to see. Uh, and we went to three very different parts of mm. – uh, we went from uh, – uh, the tropics where we were, uh, where I got leeches and bitten up by mosquitoes mm, and great hot fun. and humid <laughs> up to the, yeah, uh, up to the uh, Himalayas uh, where we uh, were in an unheated tiny little cabin w- when it was uh, below freezing at night. So, ah, you know, we, okay. we sort of ran the gamut of, uh, of, of temperature and comfort. That sounds like an adventure. That sounds fantastic. Uh, but I think I was in India when, uh, or maybe it happened right before I left, but I, when, uh, you know, HBO sort of changed hands and changed direction and maybe canceled uh, uh, some other Game of Thrones uh, shows that were in, <laughs> that were in some stage of uh, formation. Uh, so I don't really know what's going on with, with, with all of that. But, well, uh, from what I've heard... And I guess I've got pretty good sources on this. Cancel cancel would maybe be too strong. The only one that was sort of like had any kind of traction was the Jon Snow show, right? Yeah. And that one's been put on hold. Now, that might be Hollywood speak for canceled. But I think it's more like uh, the, you know, the, the franchise has changed hands. They want to put the pause button and sort of assess what they have. So it could be that we still do get a Jon Snow sequel, but I we'll guess... have to wait for we'll have to wait for Duncan Egg, I guess. Yeah, um, I, it's it's interesting. What what would you most want in terms of sort of um, Westeros adjacent franchise? What would you most like to see? I know George R. R. Martin has uh, said that uh, this is a non-starter, but I would like to see Robert Trebellion. Uh You oh. know, uh, I, I've always enjoyed the 
the the way the, uh, the, the sort of the backstory that we hear about uh in in game of thrones and from martin himself and from other sources uh, uh such as the world of ice and fire mm-hmm. about the about the the sort of the the politics behind the behind the rebellion uh you know you have this kind of block of young guys tywin stefan baratheon uh you know the, the mad king you know before he was mad mm-hmm. uh and before i think before, even starting before he was king we hear a little bit about that uh, and at some point that goes that kind of runs off the rails and goes south and of course stefan baratheon dies uh and then we have the sort of the new the next generation uh w- which is i mean you know Bob Stark seems very, very young to be going to war, yeah. and but then again, so 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 was Ned, uh, you know, a generation before, and Robert, they they were about the same age uh, as as Rob, maybe maybe just a tiny bit older, a little bit older. Um, I mean, at least they've got puberty on their side. I don't even think Rob yeah. has puberty on his side yet. I think he's fifteen or something. I think Ned yeah. was at Harrenhal. Ned was seventeen or eighteen. I can't yeah, remember. Something but, like that. Yeah, you know, and, and the, the whole. I think you could get a whole season out of the political intrigue of Harrenhal, which we're only maybe not a whole season, but we're 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 only kind of treated to just a little bit of that political intrigue. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know, they're secretly they're secretly meeting in order to promote uh, Rhaegar as uh, uh, so. And, and you know, that sort of I, I've always wanted to see the Battle of the Bells on screen. You know, there's just a lot of mm-hmm. really interesting interesting moments. I think Duncan Egg would be a very close second because it it's uh, so different than anything else that has been up on screen. I mean, I think the sort of the Duncan Egg banter, I think when Jamie and Braun went to, you know, went to Dorne, you kind of you kind of get a little bit of the roadshow. Mm-hmm. Uh but it's, you know, it's two adult characters. It's it, it's a completely different dynamic. Yeah. I think I think Duncan Egg uh would be uh, those those are the two I want to see. One that I would love and I don't know how well they'd be able to do this. It would have to be almost like a 10 season arc, but following uh Brendan Rivers who you know becomes a knight and then he becomes hand of the king and then he becomes lord commander of the night's watch and then he becomes a three-eyed crow and to me that's i mean that that guy's got the best story <laughs> that's quite the character arc that, yeah. and by if you want if you could read that he ends up becoming king in the form of bran stark at the at the very end right okay. um uh but i think that that would be an interesting, let's say, 10-season arc. And by the time you get to the 10th season, you could actually retell the end of Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones, through, through his uh, through, perspective. Through his perspective, and, yeah. and, and do it a little bit differently than they they ended the, the uh, original series. I don't know. That's just one idea. Um, I am available, HBO, if you want uh, any more insight <laughs> into Brendan Rivers. I'm glad you brought up Robert's Rebell- Rebellion, Andrew, because that is kind of the origin story of Davos, who we'll be talking about today. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you get the sense that, uh, you know, that Robert has commanded Stannis to hold Dragonstone. And then, of course, Stannis is surrounded and can't get any food and is actually starving and is sending petitions out for help, and he's not receiving any help. And finally, this smuggler comes with some onions. And that actually saves the life of Stannis and his men. And because of that, um, Davos is elevated uh, to knighthood and and improves the prospects of his family. And uh, And this, of course, is sort of mentioned a little bit in the prologue and then of course uh we see a full pov chapter from davos today yeah i, I it's uh, st- uh storm's end and uh uh that's bc oh yeah, yeah. And, sorry uh, about that of course and, th- and thank you yeah. for correcting me yeah did i get any of that else did i get the rest yeah of no every, every I, I, that was just a slip of the tongue uh <laughs> no but, i know, i did actually think it was dragonstone for whatever reason but um thank you for correcting me and but this is all sort of sort of Robert's re- rebellion, and it, one of these reminders that war can actually serve as an avenue for upward mobility. Uh, f- if you're in the right place at the right time, and you make the right friend of the right social standing, 
you can become a sir. You can become Sir Davos. And I think Gurm is very good at at showing how fortunes for for families and individuals do rise, and they they also do do fall, you know, and sometimes they rise again, you know. Yeah. And and I think that's very that's that's very apropos to, to real history. That uh, war, it, it, you know, it's a struggle. It's a political struggle before, during, and after. Mm-hmm. Uh, the military struggle only lasts for a you know a, a specific period of time, but there's this ever constant flow of uh, uh, of, of power and influence that, that takes place. Uh, and Davos is, is one who's on the ascendancy. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a preoccupation with him thinking about his sons and how they're going to have a different future. And, and a very interesting thing in that there's a difference between his older sons who are made ships captains, but will never be uh, anything more. Yeah. And his, his younger sons who are young enough that they can sort of be, taken in and educated within Stannis's household. I know we'll, that too. Yeah. Will someday become knights. You know, they're, they're, they're young, young enough that they're able to maybe benefit even more than his older sons. Yeah. They're going to, they're going to grow up with social standing. And yeah. when he mentions the, which of his sons can read, he does not mention the older sons. Yeah. He mentions the younger sons. And so, of course, the, you know, the older sons, they, they may become knights. It's possible. Yeah, I think the one, there is one older son that can read, uh, which is Allard. Okay. Uh, he's the sort of the, I think he's actually, uh, does he have seven sons? I think he might be the fourth. Seven strong sons, yes. Seven seven strong sons, yeah. Yeah, I think that that's a good point. That His older sons are sort of immigrants to the world of, tapestries and painted tables and whatnot um, yeah much as stannis in uh, much as uh, davos is yes, himself that's right and then the younger sons of course they will grow up with a much different sort of world of possibility let me read the uh let me read my synopsis here and then we can uh jump right in sure davos the smuggler turned onion knight looks on as the statues of the seven gods burn. Melisandre's new religion has driven a wedge between Stannis and his men, some now dead, some now imprisoned for refusing R'hllor. Davos endeavors to sit on the fence, but feels nauseous at the sight of the gods burning. Even so, he quiets the misgivings of his sons. Davos meets with Salado Asan, who is gossiping and eating grapes. San is confident that Stannis will be able to take the King's Landing, but skeptical about Mel's interpretation of Lightbringer and Azor Ahai come again. He tells Davos the story of Azor Ahai and the Red Sword of Heroes. After a brief exchange with Lord Florent, Davos attends King Stan's council. Stannis declares his intention to spread the word of Joffrey's true parentage and commands Davos and his sons to help him. Once alone, Davos voices his concern over the belief of the common folk. There is no proof of Cersei's infamy, argues Davos. The people will not warm to the Lord of Light, either. Stannis replies that the people of Westeros have never loved him, but he will go with the Red God because Melisandre has legitimate power. Dr. Andrew Howe, what do you bring to the table today? Well, I think it's a uh, very interesting chapter. It's the first chapter we get from uh, uh, this character that mm-hmm. we've we've seen in the the prologue, mm-hmm. but we we ha- don't really know much about him. And I, I think he becomes a very important character for A Song of Ice and Fire. Uh, and it's going to be interesting to see if his character arc uh, continues in the vein that was explored in the show where in many ways he becomes one of the sort of moral centers of... Um, one may argue... <laughs> the, one of the few! Yeah. <laughs> one of the few uh, moral moral centers. Yeah. Uh, I think there, there's a few others too, but you know he's in, involved in this very violent political uh, and military struggle, but it, it keeps his humanity in a way, in, a, in ways that many of the other characters, even the, you know, quote unquote, good characters, mm-hmm. or at least the ones we're supposed to be sympathetic with, uh, do. And, um, you know, I think we see it in um, uh, his name, uh, you know, born in Flea Bottom. Uh, he really only has a first name. He doesn't, right. he, he, acquire, he acquires, uh, he acquires the name and acquires the sigil, 
uh, and acquires uh, title and land huh. and leg- legitimacy. Uh, and the name is Seaworth, you know, meant to denote his skill on the, you know, as a sailor. Uh-huh. But, you know, we, we kind of get the idea that, you know, much, much as Brienne of Tarth in many ways, uh, he's coming into a situation where he, who he is is sort of an impediment to what he wants to be. There's a lot of classism that we can address later yeah, in you, this chapter. Yeah, you get the sense that Seaworth is sort of a name that he's acquired because, of course, now he's higher society. I don't get the sense that his father had the name Seaworth. As a last no, no. Uh, he Born in Flea Bottom, he would have sort of one right. name. But this name is meant to, you know, denote – it's a maritime distinction, right? But uh, – you know he's he's worthy another he proves he proves his worth mm-hmm. in other other ways throughout the throughout the series. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now you mentioned that this is the first Davos POV chapter, so a question for you: Is this the first POV chapter from someone who's lowborn in the entire that's series? A, that's a really good. Uh, I we don't know the prologue to the first book. You know, will. Yeah, um, we I had guess that d- you the could discussion. probably. Yeah, I, I was not thinking of the sort of the prologues, or, but yeah, um, yeah, I, uh, yeah. I don't know. I, th- I, th- I think you're right. I, I think everyone else, all the other POV chapters, are Stark or Lannister. You know, mm-hmm. uh, kind of more along those lines. More along, e- even more unique. I think this is the first new POV character that Martin's introduced because up until this point in A Clash of Kings. All the other POV characters are people we've we've heard their interior voice before. Um, you know, we've we've had a, a Tyrion and a Sansa and a couple Aryas and Catelyn. Um, we, In fact, they're all they're all Stark up to this point uh, uh, until right? until the, the 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 one that's immediately pre preceding the Davos chapter, and that's Tyrion's right, chapter. Right, and then we get Tyrion's chapter. Well, that's interesting. It, it, I think we might actually have two Tyrion chapters. Um, oh, is that right? Okay. That's it's interesting to me because I remember thinking when I'm working through this chapter, and it's it's a longer chapter. Um, I remember thinking, oh god, <laughs> this <laughs> this kind of. I, don't, I hope it's not a lot of Davos. I don't care about Davos. And I think I think it is that it's that little thing like ah, he's he's giving me someone new, and I've got to invest in a new person that I have never met before. And let's get back to Tyrion. You know, let's. I, I want to hear what Tyrion has to th- say about all this. What was your sense? Do you remember reading this chapter for the first time? Do you remember how you felt about Davos as an introductory character? So my my path through the books and the show is um, I I was told about the show. I watched it. I, I watched it again. I think mm-hmm. I watched it the next day. You know, the very first episode. Uh, and I, you know, I became a big, so I, I got the book, but I think I finished reading the first book, um, about the time the, the first season was over, Yeah. but, but by the time the second season rolled around, I'd already read the, the second book. So yeah, I came, I, I came to Davos not knowing who anything about him or who he was. I, you know, he hadn't even appeared on the TV show yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, it's a new character. It was, it was a little daunting to, Oh, we're going to be adding new characters, you know, because we had seen Stannis and King's Landing uh-huh. uh, in the in the first book, but you know he wasn't, you know he he leaves, right? Yeah, uh, he leaves very quickly. Uh, you know, who's this Melisandre person? You know, oh, there's a new re- there's there's a new religion that that I think I heard referenced before that now I need to start following. So it, mm-hmm. it was a you know the, this is where you start seeing this sort of the the uh, burgeoning or mushrooming of of the the canvas the canvas starts to get a lot bigger um but i i think you know the chapter is is very well laid out yeah as you point out it's on the long side there's no doubt about that but but he he does a lot of um you know it's introducing new characters Mm -hmm. there's quite a bit about sacrifice Mm -hmm. in this chapter uh, which is very interesting uh it's the introduction of um the sort of the lower class uh, element getting a voice uh, mm-hmm. at the table. Yeah. Uh, and, and then there's a lot of prognostication as to things to come. I mean, I, I would have suspected this chapter probably took him a long, uh, Martin a long time to write because he had to write linguistically. Uh, one thing I did is I noticed in the, in the TV show, 
and this this is okay so this is this is deep game of thrones nerd territory you come to the uh, right place yeah liam uh liam uh i think his name is liam cunningham cunningham yeah yeah uh, and, and the script that was written for him, he uses a lot of adverbs correctly. Uh, you know, he he's saying things like uh, properly, mm-hmm. correctly. Uh, and for somebody who just learned to read like a year before, um, you know, that, that that seemed a little strange to me. So I, I was looking for adverbs as I was reading this. Uh, but it was it, uh, Martin writes him, I think, it, in his interior monologue, it's very different than, for instance, Tyrion's. Uh, yeah interior monologue which is uh you know i don't know how, how i want to say this but uh is uh more literary perhaps yeah, yeah. you might say so you know i think i think martin had to write him as if he was from fleabot if as if martin you know martin had to put himself in the headspace uh-huh. not of a of an of a noble but uh from somebody that an unlettered individual with no schooling uh who you know survived by his wits and his skill at seafaring yeah i for the very first time with this chapter, I just got an Audible uh, subscription as a gift, and mm-hmm. I thought, I'll give this a try on audio. So I listened to this chapter on audio. I don't know if you've done this, but it's a nightmare. Um, oh, is it really? Oh, my gosh. Because, uh, I mean, Roy Deutsch is, is fine as a narrator, but he makes Davos sound like not just like a pirate like the most cliche pirate you've ever heard in your life and i yeah i liam cunningham's voice is in my head for sure and it could be that you know that you know making him more of a creature of flea bottom is the right move for sure but i couldn't hear i couldn't hear the his voice in the way that roy dotris puts him forth I, I had to, I had to stop it. <laughs> I could I couldn't do it. Um, just to, just to, just to be clear, I think Liam Cunningham does a great job with the accent. I think I think that they they write him being too grammatically correct. Well, let me so push it's, it's back more on right, this. Right, right. Uh, sure, let me play sure. devil's advocate here. So, all right. So, how many years since Robert's Rebellion do we think this is? About fourteen, fifteen years. Yeah. Well, because Rob is is. I think 15 and John is yeah. 14 or they're, they're about 14 uh, at the beginning of yeah, the, yeah. Uh, the, the books. All right. So let's say, let's say you are a flea bottom dialect kind of person, but you've been hanging around Stannis and the people, you know, people like these Florence and whatnot been hanging around that crew for about 14 years. Don't you think that a little bit of that rubs off? You say, you know, just 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 him trying to fit in. Yeah, I suppose. Uh, you know, he still has a flu. He even, I, I, you know, I I don't know if it happens in the books. No, it doesn't. Uh, the where he mentions his flea bottom accent, he may do it more than once. Uh, when John arrives on Dragonstone and they're having this, uh-huh. uh, uh, you know, sort of introductory, you know, reading all their titles or whatever, uh-huh. uh, he references his flea bottom accent. So. You know, he still perceives uh, that he has one. Yeah, I'm not saying um, necessarily that he he loses the accent. I'm saying that maybe he picks up a little bit of the the correct grammar. So, yeah, speech path. Yeah, that, that that could certainly be. I mean, as you point out, quite a bit of time has transpired, and yeah, yeah. you know, we we don't know the degree to which you know we, clearly Stannis trusts him. Uh, how, how long did it take to earn? that trust it probably wasn't overnight you know you bring me a bunch of onions and i'm gonna uh, entrust you with state secrets and you know but you know clearly there's there's been a a period where uh he's been around stannis a lot and and uh has been sort of uh living in that in in that world okay so that brings me to one of my crucial questions for you right why does stannis like having davos around if we can believe Stannis, uh, and I think we can, uh, I think uh, he is in, in in many ways a little bit like Ned as a character. He, he says what he means, uh-huh. and he means means what he says, and he's he's more rigid than Ned, I think. But they're both fairly rigid, and honor is important, yeah. you know. Uh, but he 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 says if I think he he basically tells. Davos, if if I wanted useless people that just parrot back the information to me that they think I want to hear, I would have 
asked those other lords to stay. You know, he has the lord, the his bannermen. You know, he has to have a council with them. And then, but then he sends them off and brings in Davos by himself, which shows the level of trust and, yeah. uh, you know, I, not I guess not by himself. Uh, there's one other person who then he dismisses. Yeah, Pylos uh, is there at the beginning to read Pylos. the letter, right? Yeah, Pylos. Uh, and, and he he says, "I want you to tell me. You, you've always told me the truth. Tell me the truth now, uh, because he knows he can get unvarnished truth from from Davos." And yeah, and, and I think we see that throughout the books, and then continuing uh, beyond the books th- throughout the uh, Stannis's death, which happens probably in the next book, if if not certainly. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think that that's definitely part of it. I feel like um, there is something about Davos that will give him, like he's learned to trust Davos's honesty or his bluntness or his candidness in a way that he feels like he can never trust one of these high lords or ladies that he keeps around, right? Yeah, and I think the 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 proof is in the pudding for Stannis because if Davos really wanted to climb the ladder, mm-hmm. if that was if that was his sole ambition, he would try to fit in more. He would try to be more like these bannermen, the other bannermen. Mm-hmm. Uh, he would say what he thinks other people want to hear. But clearly, in the last fourteen years, yeah. he has done a service for Stannis above and beyond bringing in a bunch of onions yeah, uh, in, in a storm's end, which is uh, bringing him a perspective that no one else will ha- has the fortitude to, uh, to share with Stannis. Yeah, and, I, uh, I totally agree. I think that there's another reason in addition to that, that struck me in this chapter that I hadn't seen before. At one point he says, I had Crescent for his wisdom and you for your wiles. Oh, interesting. I, I, I kind of passed that, that yeah, part over. Yeah, it's here. I see. Uh, he says something like, um, I trusted in his wisdom and your wiles. What do they avail me, smuggler? So I think that there's a sense in which, yes, D- Davos is, is a good and worthy counselor, but he also kind of likes to have a smuggler around. Somebody that knows uh, all the trails up the cliff here and who to bribe there and yeah. you know, things of that nature. Yeah. And I think that there's something about uh, there's something about having someone who has just sort of the the muscle memory of the sea that makes him feel a little bit more secure. I think that there's something about his parents dying at sea that makes him feel very insecure. I think he's still very traumatized by that. I think Davos brings him a little bit more security. And in addition to that, what's his plan in this chapter? Uh, Stannis decides he's going to launch an information campaign. And in order to do that, he's going to have to get letters into enemy territory. And And eventually, yeah. And so he tells, I want to, he says, I want you to use every smuggler's trick that you have. Uh, We're going to send these out by Raven, but I also want you to go in, you know, sneak into ports and have these read uh, by you know in in enemy territory, and so he he does like having sort of his smuggler right his his own sort of personal smuggler on the payroll, and he doesn't he doesn't he he absolutely has no qualms about using Davis in that way. And, and the, yeah, so there's that, that additional utility. That that uh, Stannis provi- uh, that Davos provides, yeah. and and then we also see a a, a third one, uh, which is uh, that he's likely Stannis is going to have to rely on some sort of naval mm-hmm. victory yeah. in some capacity uh, in order to uh, take King's Landing, uh, you know, which which you know we see uh, late later in this book. Yeah, Stannis can rely on someone like Davos, uh, who knows uh, who has contacts. In this world, uh, mm-hmm. with uh, Salador San, who's interestingly enough not like a close friend as he is in the show. I, I'd forgotten that from the books when well, I, until it seems I read like they, this chapter. They know each other professionally. They know each other, but they're not like, yeah. but they're not like uh, sort of bosom bosom buddies. Uh, but you know, he has contacts in this world. Uh, he can lead the assault on King's Landing. He can engage in both open military 
naval maneuvers, but also the sort of clandestine naval, you know, sneaking onto islands mm-hmm. and ports and shore and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah. yeah, no, he, yeah, he really does. I, I sort of hadn't considered it before, but he really sort of helped Stannis on a number of levels. So if that's true, let's say he likes Davos for those three reasons. I think that we can say that the same mentality, we could call it like Stannis's proclivity to bring in an outsider and like prop them up as sort of a chief advisor is what has benefited Davos. And it's that same proclivity that brings Mel into the fold, even though Davos really doesn't like what Mel is bringing to the table. But I think it benefits both Davos and Mel. I think that there's something about this that's like, yeah, but that was the same. Maybe he doesn't recognize it, but that's the same proclivity that gave you a place at the table. Yeah, yeah, I, I hadn't sort of thought about it in those terms. I mean, it is sort of like a a, a, a kind of a, a, a motley crew, uh, you know, including mm-hmm. Patchface, who's actually, uh, <laughs> you know, motley. You know, I mean, uh-huh. uh, it is sort Actual of like a kind motley of a, crew. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. It is sort of a kind of a uh, an interesting band of of individuals that he's, uh-huh. uh, you know, the lonesome child. Uh, the sort of the the uh, religion crazed <laughs> wife, uh, it is yeah. kind of a, a very strange group of individuals. But yeah, I hadn't thought of that similarity between these two characters that are very much at opposition uh, to each other because they have very different worldviews and because they're both trying to uh, uh, secure Stannis's ear. That's right, and and Stannis's game plan it seems is he's he says I got two things going for me. I don't have the most gold. I don't have the most political capital. Here's what I have going for me. I have ships and I've got the red woman. Yeah. The ships are sort of Davos's forte. And then of course the red woman is bringing her own kind of power to the table. So that's his that his strategy seems like Stannis's strategy is to find an unlikely power source. And in sort of win in unconventional ways. Um, he, he's not going to play the politics game as well as Renly. He's not going to have as much money as Tywin. Uh, but if, if, he can, if he can employ a smuggler and a witch, he will absolutely employ a smuggler and a, a witch if he thinks it'll bring him victory. Uh, yeah, so his, his sort of two primary resources are kind of encapsulated in these two characters mm-hmm. of, of Melisandre and, uh, uh, and Davos there, there, I don't know if it mentions it in this chapter, or if it's one of the ones that immediately precedes it, but at one point there's a character who's kind of running through the various different claimants for the throne. And, mm-hmm. you know, they conclude that Stannis is the only battle hardened commander, you know, that Rob Stark is, is a little green and perhaps impulsive, uh, Joffrey has no experience. Renly has no experience. Mm. Uh, I don't, at this point, you know, um, the Iron Islands haven't risen yet. Right. Uh, yeah. So, you know, I think he does have a, th- you know, he's the third in this triumvirate. He has experience. So, you know, she, she uh, Mel has the magic and, you know, mm-hmm. the ability to see the future, even if she usually misinterprets it. Uh, Davos has this uh, skill set that no one else has, you know, naval smuggling uh, yeah, yeah. truth tr- tr- truth telling skill set that no one else has uh, but Stannis himself uh, has this uh, you know he he's been through probably the worst siege uh, maybe in a hundred years yeah. in, in Westeros right and and survived it with with the help of of, of Davos uh, he's, he's battle tested so he's the third you know he has his own skill skill set uh that uh that yeah you know will help him on this uh, uh, on his journey for the iron throne it's uh so interesting in addition to that in in the previous john snow snow chapter we heard from the armorer or the blacksmith who used to be employed Storm's yeah, Storm's End. End. yeah about the different types of metal the different kinds of metal and he's sort of re- referring to stannis as iron you know someone who's going to break before he bends um, you, you do you do really get that sense of his personality in this chapter. 
Uh, he's, yeah, he, he's, he's rigid to an extreme. Yeah, he, yeah, he's sort of an extreme character for sure. I also noted that in this chapter, we heard the story of Azora High for the first time. Man, did that ever create a lot of fan theory? <laughs> because, of course, it never comes into the show at all. But uh, you got man, we had a lot for a long time. It was just all Azora High all the time in trying to predict the end of the series. Yeah, I I don't think. It's going to be a MacGuffin uh, at the end uh, of A Song of Ice and Fire. But, uh, you know, you have all these different, uh, you know, the prince that was promised yeah, and, yeah. you know, all, all the other sort of uh, uh, prognostications. I, I kind of got into those theories at one point, And, you know, one, one of them suggests that uh, tempering it in water was Caitlin, uh, you know, sort of dra- uh, drowning and having having her head, mm. having a throat slit and being thrown into the water as a, almost like a fish, you know, oh, she's a tully and sort of washing up on shore and uh, in the books. Uh, um, I can't remember the character. Thoros? In the, uh, uh, yeah, is it Thoros? No, no, not, or, not um, Thoros. Uh, it, it's um, the other guy. Uh, Dondarrion. Dondarrion, Beric Dondarrion. Yeah. I, th- I think in the books, if I remember correctly, Beric Dondarrion is no longer reanimated uh because he uh, he passes it on to caitlin yeah that's how it, it, we get lady stoneheart right that's how we get lady stoneheart in the in one of the theories is interesting is that uh uh jamie will uh or at least uh, at least a lannister will will die and and caitlin will pass on the reanimatedness to him uh, because it goes from a sort of water uh imagery to a lion imagery oh a tully I, to a lion yeah thought I would pause my conversation with Andrew for a moment because I thought we might benefit from hearing the Azor High story firsthand from Salador San. San says, Do you know the tale of the forging of Lightbringer? I shall tell it to you. It was a time when great darkness lay heavy on the world. To oppose it, the hero must have a hero's blade. Oh, like none other that had ever been. So for thirty days and thirty nights, Azor Ahai labored sleepless in the temple, forging the blade in the sacred fires. Heat and hammer and fold. Heat and hammer and fold. Oh yes, until the sword was done. Yet when he plunged it into water to temper the steel, it burst asunder. Being a hero, it was not for him to shrug off and go in search of excellent grapes such as these. So again he began. The second time it took him fifty days and fifty nights, and this sword seemed even finer than the first. Azorai captured a lion to temper the blade, and plunged it through the beast's red heart. But once more the steel was shattered and split. Great was his woe, and great was his sorrow then, for he knew what he must do. A hundred days and a hundred nights he labored on the third blade, and as it glowed white-hot in the sacred fires, he summoned his wife. Nissa Nissa, he said to her, for that was her name. Bear your breast, and know that I love you best of all that is in this world. She did this thing, why I cannot say, and Azorahai thrust the smoking sword through her living heart. It is said that her cry of anguish and ecstasy left a crack across the face of the moon, but her blood and her soul and her strength and her courage all went into the steel. Such is the tale of the forging of Lightbringer, the Red Sword of Heroes. I think I've just decided to view that this is sort of like a New Testament parable. (laughs) Uh, It's not meant to be taken literally. It's a parable of sacrifice. And I I think this chapter may support that because it, it does have... You know, from from the minutia of the sacrifice of his finger of Davos's fingers, uh, to the you know he loses four fingers, t- tips of his fingers. Mm-hmm. I believe in Blackwater. You know, he has he's obsessing over his son his sons, and someday they will all mm-hmm. be legitimate. I think he loses the his oldest four sons in the Blackwater. Oh, is so that I, right? I hadn't, I, hadn't I believe so. That. Yeah. I, I, you know, that was one thing I was going to verify uh, before, uh, before this, uh, this meeting. And I, I completely forgot, but I believe the, his eldest four sons die, uh, which if, if that's true, uh, you know, mirror the four fingertips, but above and beyond that, the, the whole Nisa Nisa thing, uh-huh. I think, and the fact that he loses son, he does lose sons. I, I just, I'm not sure of the precise number, uh-huh. 
because it's, that's a later chapter somewhere. Uh, it's very resonant with the story of Isaac and, mm. you know, Isaac being uh, Abraham in the Old Testament being told to sacrifice his son. Mm -hmm. And, you know, <laughs> Isaac carries the kindling up the mountain and and it's only at the last moment does does God intervene. And it was a test of Abraham's loyalty. And mm -hmm. we certainly see loyalty here. We certainly see sacrifice. We see sons dying. Uh, and then later, if I'm going to be very curious if Shireen is sacrificed in the books. I think as she Martin has confirmed the... that Shireen will be sacrificed in that way. Interesting. Um, okay. So, you know, there, there's this sort of, it, it really is a chapter about wanting to just demonstrate loyalty about uh, wanting to move, demonstrating loyalty mm, to God. Mm. Although in this case, I think at one point he even says, Stannis is, is my God. He says at the show, I, I, I'm not, I can't remember it's if it's in the books. It's funny that you, that you bring in the sort of these parables of faith, because in many ways, this chapter is about the loss of faith. We, we find out that Stannis had, the, the inciting moment for Stannis or the origin story of Stannis was that when he saw his parents' ship go down, he stopped believing he in loses gods. Faith, he loses faith in the gods. Yeah. Yes. And it starts with the, with the gods burning, you know, which is in one sense is a sort of a foreshadowing of, uh, uh, Cersei blowing up the sept of Baylor, which may or may not happen in the books, but it certainly happens in the show. Uh, and, um, you know, there's just a lot of foreshadowing and a lot of pondering of mm -hmm. gods and sac and sacrifice in this chapter. Uh, so I think that that kind of gives it a unique flavor because while we're getting this, I don't believe in God, the gods anymore, Stannis is my God, we're seeing the ascendancy of Melisandre, right. who's going to bring a more religious varnish to, to one of the sort of narrative streams of Song of Ice and Fire, you know, the, the Stannis yeah. Davos uh, stream. Let me just read this one section here, which I thought was interesting. Your, this is Davos talking. He says, your people will not love you if you take from them the gods that they have always worshipped and give them one whose very name sounds queer on their tongues. Stannis stood abruptly. Relore, why is that so hard to say? They will not love me, you say. Well, when have they ever loved me? How can I lose something I have never owned? He moved to the south window to gaze out at the moonlit sea. I stopped believing in gods the day I saw the wind proud break up across the bay, referring to the death of his parents. Any god so monstrous as to drown my mother and father would never have my worship, I vowed. In King's Landing, the High Septon would prattle at me about how all justice and goodness flow from the Seven, but all I ever saw of either was made by men. Then Davos asks, If you do not believe in gods, Stannis breaks in and says, Why do I trouble with this one? So you get a sense there that it's his sort of natural inclination not to believe in any gods. But he thinks... There might be something to R'hllor because he's seen actual power in Melisandre in some way. We don't. We're not really told what he's seen, but he's seen something that has him thinking, "This woman can help me win a war." And uh, th that's all stuff that I think is very helpful for Stannis's character development. That we we don't get any of that in the show. I, I think Stannis is. Uh... In the television show, I always enjoyed the Stannis scenes, but there's just a lot of scenes of him just brooding and, mm. you know, being kind of cranky. And, you know, they, they could have they could have developed a little. He's more than just a sort of a cranky. Uh, I want the Iron Throne and mm. I'll, I'll, you know, I'll do anything, in, uh, including burn my daughter to get it. There is depth to him. Yeah, he's uh, insecure. The, he's he's yeah. wounded, this guy. Yeah, I mean, he's you know is still traumatized by by what happened to his parents and angry about being uh, sort of cut off at Storm mm -hmm. Storm's End and and then given Dragonstone as uh, he views that as a slight. You mm -hmm. know that uh, we get a lot more of that in the in the books, mm -hmm. and I think he's a sort of a more well rounded character as a result. The other character that I feel is very different from page to screen is Davos because in this chapter we see he's. He's a man of luck. Like every now and again, he'll like pat the head of a gargoyle and say luck. Yeah. Yep. And which gives you a, a sense like, yeah, of course, sailors were always very superstitious people, right? Um, yeah. 
and that kind of fits with him. You don't really get that sense in the show. He's in and in this book, he's not a very devout man, but he believes in the seven, like in in a way that sort of a someone who's marginally connected to sort of the fabric of a society is going to use religion for the key moments of their life. You know, he's he's going to pray to the the mother when his wife is pregnant, he's going to pray to the smith when he's launching a new ship. So he's not necessarily what you'd call a, a pious man. He's religious in a way you would just expect your garden variety commoner to be religious. And I don't feel like we get that in the show either. And one one other uh, key difference uh, between the television show and 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 what's depicted in this in this particular chapter. In, in the television show, it references that he has sons, but we only really meet one named Mathos, yeah, yeah. I believe. Uh-huh. And Ma- Mathos is very much a convert to the, you know, to uh, the Lord of Light. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this chapter, it makes very clear that not only does Davos, you know, I- I- is invested in, in the Seven, so are his older sons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the, the, you know, including Mathos, uh, who I think, I think in the the chapter Allard is the captor or Allard or however he's mm-hmm. pronounced is, is Mathos in the show. You know, the scribe. There, I think there's three ships captains. There's the scribe uh, for 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 Stannis, and then there's three that are so young that they're they're at home with. Yeah, they're, they're kind like of like a squire or someone. To... Yeah, or they will at some point. I mean, I think they're still with with uh, they're still at home with yeah. with 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 his wife. Uh, but the older ones, one of them even says something to him, and he basically says, oh, "Enough of that," you know. So they change the they change that character, Allard slash Mathos, from grumbling about uh, what's happening because you know he's invested in the light of the seven. Uh, uh, to being in the television show, uh, a new con and, and very extreme convert to the to the Lord of Light. I think so. I think you're right. I think what they've done two things. One, they've, they've kind of contracted characters. You don't get the sense that Davos is the father of seven boys and two girls or whatever. Um, you get the sense that he has he has a son, and that yeah. that son dies. And yep. but and he's be- actually witnesses him dying. That's yeah. right. And before he dies, that son is all in for Relor. We're not attacking King's Landing so that you can rape the queen. I'm not going to rape her. I'm going to fuck her, as if she would just let you. You don't know how persuasive I am. I never tried to fuck you. Stannis is the rightful king and the Lord of Light. <sighs> The one true God. I've been all over the world, my boy, and everywhere I go, people tell me about the true God. They all think they found the right one. The one true God is what's between a woman's legs, and better yet, a queen's legs. In this chapter, we get the voice of a, a son who's set to see the, the old gods burn, or I shouldn't say the old gods, the, the, the seven gods burn. So yeah, there, that that's a major difference in the show. And I, what, it, what it does is it allows Davos to become more of a father to Shireen than Stannis actually is. Yeah. Because of course he's lost a son and Shireen's father is, is far too distant. Always, always absent. And, and, and mother is, uh, you know, not exactly a, the motherly type. And that's another very interesting change incidentally that I, I hope there's going to, that, that Martin, there's a payoff eventually in somewhere in the next book, because in the TV show, Celise, we know very little about her. She she sort of hits a, a singular note the entire time until the end, when she's the one that tries to intervene at the end of yeah, uh, this is right. in the show. Yeah. But in the books, starting here, and it, maybe even in the prologue, and actually continuing up at Castle Black, there's a real distinction uh, that's very uh, subtle, and but it keeps coming up and over and over again about that. The, there's Stannis's men. And there's Salisa's men, right? Yeah, yeah. And Salisa's men are more converts to Rolar than Stannis's men. And I'm wondering. And if Davos this is gonna... doesn't trust Salisa's men. No, not at all, because they're 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 who they really are is Melisandre's men. Right. 
uh, they, they're Melisandre before Stannis in, in, in one well, sense. Well, some of that, the, some of that house has declared for Renly in this chapter. We're told that some of the, the Florence. Florence have. Yeah, yeah, and and here the uh, Axel Flor. I think it's Axel Florence yeah. in the book is is very much a convert. Whereas in the TV show, I think he gets burned. He's actually getting burned at one point. Um, but I, I wonder if this um, Stannis's men, Salisa's men thing that gets mentioned time, time and again, you know, it's just, just passing references. But, you know, Gurm doesn't just throw in some passing references That's a lot true. without a payoff. And I wonder if there's going to be conflict between, you know, they're, you know, snowed in somewhere between Winterfell and, 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 and Castle Black at this point in the books, uh, where we're, where we've currently been, you know, on pause for uh, 12 years. Uh, and uh, I wonder if there's going to be conflict over Shireen and what they do to Shireen. Yeah, I think uh, I, I think that's got to be a major talking point. I want to tell you something else I just learned. I would just, when you were saying Axel Florent, I know that Gurm loves to name characters after, like, musicians that he enjoys hmm. i thought i wonder if the name florent actually is a flower and so i looked it up um, axel rose wow. yes <laughs> yes it's old french and it means flower oh my goodness and of course axel so it's axel of florent in the in the book has to be a nod to axel rose right and, and are are they uh are they um where are the where did the Florence come from? I'm trying to remember. I think that they might be from near Highgarden. I think they're I think they're bannermen to the Tyrells. Yeah, so that would be yeah. a yeah. That's that's great. I I, I never would have thought of that. Until in a, you uh, just said that out loud, I thought, <laughs> oh no, oh no. Did you did you do it? And then of course, it's very very nice. No, very I think nice I think they're time. down 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 in the south towards Old Town, but but uh, yeah, I, I do th- I, I do think the Florence may. I'm not sure. I'll have to look at a yeah, map. Yeah, well, whatever uh, but... the case is, this is absolutely not to Axel Rose. I mean, <laughs> he'll Rose, do this yeah. every now and again uh, with with musicians he enjoys. Oh, that's great. Uh, yeah, that's that's really great. So, um, notable introductions in this chapter. I just, I mentioned we we got the Azor Ahai um, mythology from the lips of Salador San. We hear the name Brian Faring for the first time. Um, Stannis's flagship is named the Fury. We hear all the names of Stannis's children in this chapter for the first time. I won't go through them all. Um, notable show differences. I think that we've we've covered almost all of these um, that that I noted. Um, the the, the only one the only one we haven't is that um, Gendry. Uh, there there is a Gendry character uh, in in the books, but. The Gendry in the show is a conflation of uh, they fold some of Edric Storm uh, into in, in, into Gendry. Interesting. Uh, yeah. yeah, Edric Storm doesn't exist in in, in, in the, the television show. show oh, in yeah, the shows. Yeah, yeah. Very good. Uh, but you know, here he's very important because he's the only legitimate, or, or sorry, recognized uh, bastard. Yeah, Robert uh, has Robert claimed Robert. him as his bastard, um, in the same way that that Jon Snow was claimed by by Ned. Yeah, and. And uh, Stannis thinks that this is a proof, in a way, of the dark hair, the dark features of all of Robert's children. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So Edric Storm is is mentioned in this chapter and uh, and, and referenced for sure. There, there's one other sort of uh, interesting first. We do see Melisandre in the prologue. And she's presented as being very powerful and magical, mm-hmm, and you know, mm-hmm. she she somehow realizes what's happening uh, with Cresson, uh, and you know, is immune able to poison to, and what immune to poison, or maybe she does. Uh, who knows? You know, uh, maybe she glamours everyone into you know, she dumps it out and pauses time. Who knows what she does? But but you you get the idea in this chapter that she may not be quite as powerful. And formidable. I mean, she c- comes across hmm. 
a little bit more as a stage manager. She's creating this elaborate spectacle where he pull, you know, she lights this sword on fire and then calls it, you know, he's Lightbringer. And, you know, it, it's almost a, like an Alice Cooper uh, rock concert <laughs> without the without the music or something, you know? Well, I, mean, I was it, thinking it, she reads a little bit more like Charlatan than she does Yes, Witch. exactly. Yeah, I mean, she. It's very much a counterpoint to how she's presented in 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 the prologue, and you you kind of get the idea that she's a little bit of both. You know that, you know she she does have magical ability, obviously, but well, at the same, and we at the, also get this this character. I forget who it was, but there was a character that Davos talks to who says, "I saw a vision in the flame," and I think that this means victory for Stannis. And then Davos kind of questions it. He's like. The vision you saw in that flame is a guy who's enjoying people dancing after a great victory, but the Stannis I know would not, would not. <laughs> enjoy any sort of dancing. Yeah. Um, so you you almost get a sense like it could be that guy's making it up or whatever, but um, if he did see a, a, a vision, I think that what we have here is the first indication that, yeah, there are visions in the flames. No one really knows how to interpret these. And she might be a little bit better, but she's still she's not immune to uh, mistaking one thing for another. Uh-huh. Yeah, interesting. Uh, notable departures in this chapter. Um, we've heard about a couple uh, lords who either met their end because they were defending the the sept, the you know the the, the Aegon sept, or um, some of these lords have wound up in uh, in the dungeons. So those are the uh, the only notable departures that I've come up with. One other interesting thing that's just you know it's just fairly minor, but um, in the in the context of a song of ice and fire, but I think in in the context of House of the Dragon, that's kind of interesting is they right before Davos is summoned in to meet with Stannis, you know first with Pylos and then by himself. You know, he has this sort of group of of uh, bannermen and you know people mm-hmm. who've decided to be lo- to, to be loyal to him, and uh, and you know one of them is Val- uh, Valerian, and, and it's interesting to see how fall, far uh, the fall uh, of the of the Valerian station mm. has is between uh, House of the Dragon. Yeah. Or at least before before the House of the Dragon yeah. uh, and and the current moment where he's just one of now it does uh, Martin does sort of set him apart from the other lords because um, Valerian was the only one who didn't see the efficacy of the bastard announcement and as a friend pointed out to me uh, you know number one Valerian you know, it is a house with a, a lot of clout, even though it's fallen on hard times, mm-hmm. perhaps. So he's able to to talk to Stannis in a way that only maybe Davos is able to. Uh, but then, as a friend of mine pointed out, um, you know, there, there was the uh, sort of the uh, suspicion of bastardy and cuckolding that the Valerians had to live under yeah. uh, during, during the events, uh, you know, the strong the, the three strong children yeah, yeah. Of, of House of a Dragon. So he, you know, even a hundred years, even you know, hundred fifty years later, uh, there, there may be a little bit of a sensitivity about such accusations. I think so, know? and I think that there, I think we, what we might see here also is what that did to House Valerian um, after all these years. Like House Valerian never really recovered from the the most well known secret in the kingdom, right? Yeah, um, that's because the Celtigars are uh, are are the the Lord of the Tides now. I did yeah, the more ascendant for the very first time. I noted that the Celtigars have a an ancestral blade of sorts. Um, I did not know that House Celtigar Celtigar. I'm not sure how to say it. Um, they have a, a Valyrian steel axe. Did you oh. note that? No, I did not. I, I I read right through that. Didn't notice it. Yeah, yeah. A lesser-known Valyrian steel weapon. And my axe call the axe. He needs the axe. What a battle axe. (laughs) (laughs) A battle axe? And now Throwback Thursday with comic Steve Osborne. I tell you what, Steve... If I needed anyone to give me a pep talk after I spent, you know, three days dead, 
I'd want Davos to give me the pep talk. Davos is like the king of speeches and advice and the whole his, thing. He's always got the same premise. His premise is, look, I don't know shit. I just let me just preface everything by saying I, I really know. shouldn't be here. I got no fingers. <laughs> you really don't are, know what I'm talking about. Yeah. <laughs> but at some point, you got to be like, you know what, man? I think I think, you know, you, you give pretty good speeches because you never stop. You never, <laughs> ever stop there's no conversation with you it's just look you're it's either just you're, you're either reading poorly or you're or you're pontificating <laughs> wisely but i would want to so, man if i rose from the dead and i was freaking out because you know i rose from the you, dead you know what i feel like every and this is this has been i'm surprised i haven't brought it up yet but every time uh sir davos is doing one of his you know I, look, I don't know. I, I'm just doing my. I'm just doing my best to give you my. It remind. I'm always reminded of the scene on the ice with Ra's al Ghul in Batman Begins when Liam Neeson is just like nonstop advice. Uh, rub yeah. your chest. Rub your chest so you stay. It's like oh, that. Rub your chest moment. It's like you're just like okay, dude. You're smart. Just let me shiver for a second. So, so John gets a pep talk from Davos, who basically says. You know, he, it's a standard pep talk. I don't know shit, but look, why don't we try to get through this day and not try to be horrible people? I mean, that's right. basically. Like, well, he gives saying. the he gives it. Well, go fail again, and it's like that's that's your closer. I mean, the whole idea that that's his closer. Look, no, you're gonna fail again. Let's go do it. That's what I'm saying. I don't want to do actually. <laughs> John walks out the front door and it gets the size of his penis ridiculed by Tormund. Right, which so is so clearly know. he fails again. Exactly, he walks right. It's like he's like, man, I just like if there was a moment where you're like, I just cheated death. And he goes, you have a little dick. Ah, jeez, that's worth coming back. <laughs> 